Rock is Lit! Welcome to Rock is Lit, the podcast that takes listeners on the quest to find the very best rock novels and explore the propulsive energy and raw power of these stories about music, the people who make it, and the characters who love it. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg and Twitter and Instagram at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, follow, and spread the word. Hello, lit listeners. If you love Nirvana, especially Kurt Cobain, you are in for a treat because we're getting down in the grit and grunge in this episode. Jennifer Halp is here to talk about her new novel, Come As You Are. Set against a backdrop of Seattle in the early 90s, Come As You Are is a compelling love story and family drama that addresses the question, can we alter our dreams and stories from the past to create a better future for our children? In the second half of the show, we're joined by two giants of the real Seattle grunge world, music journalist Charles R. Cross, author of the award-winning 2001 biography on Kurt Cobain, Heavier Than Heaven, and Nabil Ayers, co-founder of Seattle's iconic Sonic Boom record store and author of the new memoir, My Life in the Sunshine. Charles and Nabil share their memories of and insight into that pivotal moment in music history, so make sure you stick around for that. But first, we welcome Jennifer Halp to the show. Jennifer is the author of the novel In the Shadow of 10,000 Hills. She's also the editor of Alone Together, Love, Grief, and Comfort in the Time of COVID-19, awarded the 2021 Washington State Book Award for General Nonfiction. Her work has been published in O, The Oprah Magazine, Psychology Today, The Rumpus, and other publications, and she curates the popular Psychology Today blog, One True Thing, a collection of essays and interviews for authors and readers. Come As You Are is her second novel. Thanks for coming on the show, Jen. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Christy. Absolutely. I know you're a big Nirvana fan, but let's find out who else you're into. Let's play a set of five questions. What's the first album or record you bought? I can't remember, but I do remember being thrilled when I won the entire America Library of albums from a radio station when I was in like eighth grade. What? (laughs) Yeah. An entire library? (laughs) Yeah, there was like eight albums or something. So that was fun. Okay. Um, And um, yeah, so, but I, yeah, I don't remember what my first album was. What was your most memorable live music experience? Um, Well, the first concert I went to was in eighth grade. It was Grand Funk Railroad and the Doobie Brothers with my best friend. Oh, wow. And then another, yeah, another memorable one was David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust tour when I was in 10th grade. Oh my gosh, that would be great. Yeah, that was really fun. And then we went to see Ricky Lee Jones. That was my first post-pandemic concert last year. And so I think that'll always be memorable. Getting out there finally after being shut in for so long. Exactly. If you had the opportunity to interview an artist or band, who would it be and what's one question you would ask? That's a really great question. I struggled with that one because there's so many artists I'd like to interview. But probably Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails comes to Mm. mind. And um, I would just ask him about his inspiration. And, you know, I would probably ask him what his favorite bands are. And just, uh, just, I have a million questions I'd ask him. <laughs> I'd ask him why he kept the door to Sharon Tate's house. Oh, did he? You know, they recorded it. Yes, he, he rented oh. that house. And this is before, I mean, this was the original house. They've torn it down now and built something else. But he rented that house and turned the living room where she was murdered into a recording studio. 
Wow. And when he left, he, he kept the door where they where the Manson family wrote, I think, pig on it. Oh, well, I so could, I'd ask him that. I could see that. That seems like a very mm-hmm. uh, Trent Reznor thing to do. <laughs> it does. What's on your playlist now? Um, I listen to music all the time because for me, music is like an antidepressant. And so um, I've got so many different things. Like um, I'm listening a lot lately to my playlist of 90s fun bands like the Go-Go's and Bananarama, B-52s. I'm always listening to indie folk rock. Um, I love country music, 70s rock, just all different kinds of things. Okay, so you've got really eclectic taste. Yeah, yeah. Which artist or band would you like to see featured in a rock novel in some capacity? <laughs> uh, I thought that was a fun one. And so I said um, Oliver Tree, who is one of the, he's a new indie artist and somewhat new. And he's just a real sort of caricature of himself. And he's got such an interesting persona to me. I think he would be a really fun character in a novel. Is he just a solo artist or is he in a band? Um, I've not heard of him. Oh, you should check him out. He's really, he's really good. He's really fun. All right. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with Jennifer Halp. And make sure you stay with us for the last segment of the show when we're joined by Charles R. Cross and Nabil Ayers. You won't want to miss their stories about Kurt Cobain in Seattle during the 1990s. Back in a moment. This is Jennifer Haupt, and you are listening to Rock is Lit. And we're back with Jennifer Haupt, author of the novel Come As You Are. I guess the best way to start this, to start talking about Come As You Are, is to have a synopsis. I'm going to cheat and read the synopsis from the book jacket, just to orient listeners. Zane and Skye are two misfit teens drawn together by their love of music and their loneliness. Both part of Seattle's grunge scene in the early 90s, they dream of moving to L.A. together. Zane's music career following the trajectory of Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder, and Sky drawing Picasso-esque portraits on the Venice Beach boardwalk. When a tragedy violently catapults them from best friends to lovers, their bond is forever strengthened and their relationship destroyed. Ten years later, they must come together as parents, putting aside abandoned dreams and broken promises. The question is, can they face the truth of who they are and become the parents their daughter needs them to be? What's the origin of the novel for you? How did this come about? Um, I was kind of always been obsessed with the early 90s grunge scene in Seattle. Um, I was not in the clubs and so forth. I was pushing a baby stroller at the time. (laughs) So this was my opportunity 
to be the rock journalist I always wanted to be and, uh, you know, really explore that time period. And um, I've always been very much interested in Nirvana and the, the, uh, the, ti- the, the book title, Come As You Are, um, is kind of reflects my, my interest in that, that song in particular, because it seems like it, to me, well, Kurt Cobain has said it's about heroin, but I, for me, it's about um, memory and, and, and kind of reconciling with who you were and who you are now. Yeah. And it's so full of contradictions too. I mean, the lyrics yeah. come as you are, as you were, as I want you to be, as a friend, as a friend, as an old enemy, take your time, hurry up, choice is yours, don't be late. There's just all of these, these contradictions. And I think that goes along with what's going on in the story. Yeah, for sure. There are a lot of contradictions in the relationship between Sky and Zane, and oh, yeah. they started out as best friends and then kind of enemies for a while, and now they're sort of trying to come together as parents um, to, res- to resolve their past um, mm-hmm. for their daughter. stick with the idea of memory for a second because memory is mentioned in the song lyrics and memory has a lot to do with what's going on in the story come as you are talk about how that functions in the book well i think people remember things in different ways and um and i mean that in several ways people number one you know really literally remember the past in different ways remember experiences in different ways and then also you remember things in your body you remember them in your sort of your senses. And I think music is really a big part of that in terms of there are songs that really are meaningful to us. And we maybe don't even remember when exactly we heard them. It doesn't remind us of, oh, I was at this party or I was at this concert. But it just brings up a feeling of that's, that, that you kind of, you know, that visceral thing of just makes you feel a certain way. Yeah. And in the story... The main character, Skye's sister, Lauren, dies in a tragic accident, and she can't remember some of the details of that, that incident. And she needs Zane to kind of fill in those holes. So her, her memory is incomplete, and he holds the key, she thinks, to helping her get a, a fuller picture of what happened. So memory is operating in that capacity, too, in the story. I'm also interested in how you use silence as a coping mechanism for these characters. There's a lot of stuff people are not talking about. That's not atypical when you're dealing with grief. Sky and Zane don't talk about what happened to Lauren. Sky's parents don't talk about their grief with each other or with Sky. You write later in the book about silence and the things the characters haven't revealed to each other and how that breeds, and this is a quote, a legacy of deception and mistrust that has repercussions beyond each single action. Well, and I think for Sky and Zane, they have such a close relationship that they don't need to talk about some, some of the things. But on the other hand, she's relying on him to be her memory. And his 
he's not the most reliable uh, source for, of that for her. Right. From that quote, I think the use of the word legacy is really interesting because it, it, it does go from Skye's parents kind of starting this. They, they don't talk about Lauren's death. They don't talk about their grief. And Skye keeps things from her daughter. She has a daughter with Zane, Montana. And she keeps things from her, too. So it's like this cycle that's, that's being repeated. Jen, I know that your sister Susie died when you were young. And I don't want to be intrusive, but if you're comfortable, can you talk about that experience? And if it was similar to what Skye and her family went through? Well, I would say that definitely informed this book because I was two and a half when she died. And so I don't, I don't remember her. um, Mm. Although I do strongly, you know, grieve for her death. And I, as as a teenager, I did. And so I think that, like I said, really informed this. And um, my parents didn't really talk about her at all. And, uh, and we weren't really, you know, that what just wasn't a thing that we talked about, because it was too upsetting for my parents. And so my sister and I wound up talking a lot about it and trying to, you know, construct what happened when we couldn't ask our parents really about yeah. that. How old was Susie? She was uh, three and a half. Goodness. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a different, different ages, but I think, you know, a lot of people deal with grief by just not either not talking about it or feeling like you grieve for a certain amount of time and then you're done. And I think grief is a long, a lifelong process. And it's, um, and so for the characters in this book, it wasn't until, you know, 10 years after this, the accident happened that they really came to, to understand their grief. You did such an amazing job depicting anxiety, depicting addiction, depicting grief, and, and just showing how crippling they can be. Thank you. Yeah. Talk a little bit. Let's break it down. Let's, let's stick with addiction first. We know that Zane has a drug problem. Kind of talk about the origin of that for him. I think for, for him, it started as just his way of dealing with anxiety um, as, as being up on stage and performing his music. And um, then it became, also, it was also a coping mechanism for him for dealing with grief for the loss of his mother. So, um, you know, I think it, that's where that came from. I had such empathy for him. And I think anybody who's experienced grief and addiction firsthand, or maybe you've got a family member, a loved one who's suffered from that, then you know the hold that that can have on you. That depiction of him was so realistic. Well, and honestly, Zane is my, you know, I mean, a lot of, <laughs> I, he's kind of my fiction boyfriend. Because um, I, <laughs> I really love Zane. And yeah. um, I know a lot of people don't. And so, but for me, I found it rather, in a way, um, admirable that he did leave when he did, instead of staying and being abusive, yeah. and um, or more abusive, I would say. And so, and it, I guess for me, I like to write characters who aren't good or bad, black or white, you know, because people are so shaded. And I like to show the. Um, I I love characters who aren't necessarily good people intrinsically but they are trying to be good people yeah. they are trying to, to 
figure out how to how to be the best person they are, even though it doesn't come, let's say, naturally to them. Right. He's got an anger management problem. We know that, along with the drug problem and the anxiety. And but he just seemed like a fully fleshed out character. You also do this great job of of showing the pressure addicted people feel. Like you're constantly on probation with everybody. Everybody's wondering if you're going to screw up and, and you're constantly having to prove that, oh no, I've, I've changed or that's, that's in the past. And you, that very much comes out with him. And there's one scene where he's with his father and his father's drinking a beer, I think. And then his father gets this guilty look like he shouldn't be drinking in front of Zane and, and Zane has to kind of comfort him and say, oh, yeah, no, it's, it's okay. I don't, I'm never tempted anymore. And you know, that's not true. I think that's a role that people that addicts fall into. It's also a role that people who are grieving fall into where they feel like they have to comfort the other, yes. the other person. And then, and I think that that's, you know, something since we're so uncomfortable with people with grief, with death, with, you know, people having addiction problems, um, we tend to, you know, feel like we need to um, uh, have responsibility for other people's feelings. And so I wanted to kind of, you know, yeah. show that. I think what also comes across is this underlying low self-esteem in Zane that began with his mother's death, I gather. At one point, he's talking to Sky about the effect his mom's death had on him. And he says, it's the quote, I thought I wasn't good enough to stick around for, to love. And then I spent a ton of energy proving that theory. And that's at the heart of his addiction that, and his inability to have successful romantic relationships. Yeah, I think it's definitely at the heart of his, you know, not being able to have a, a relationship with a woman who really loves him, which is Sky, and with his daughter, too. Like, he just feels like he doesn't deserve it. And maybe in some ways he doesn't, so... <laughs> <laughs> But not for the reasons that he thinks. He's not inherently unlovable. Right, exactly. Yeah. Let's talk about anxiety, because that's that's another thing that you deal with so honestly. Sky's mom, Carolyn, struggles with anxiety. Let's unpack that. What where did that begin and how does she handle the anxiety attacks that she has? Um, so yeah, Caroline deals with anxiety with agoraphobia. And um I think for her it was something she could control for a while when she had her kids that she had to take care of. She has a job. She's a counselor at a high school and um, all these things, you know, that she had, she needed to have a handle on her, her anxiety to make her life run smoothly. And then when Lauren died, she, it just all fell apart. There's a song I really like by um, they might be giants. It's called odds are everything's going to be all right. And it's, it's this great song about how chances are everything's going to be all right. All these horrible things can happen, but chances are they won't. And then when something horrible does happen, and then it makes you, it's harder to rationalize that, oh, bad things probably won't happen because guess what? Yeah. They do. So mm -hmm. let's go back to the music. Let's talk about the music. I'm interested in how music and musicians, especially Kurt Cobain, function in the novel. So let's start with Zane. What does music and Kurt Cobain in particular mean to Zane? So for Zane, Kurt Cobain is a little bit older than he is. He's so Zane's got an older brother, uh, Rory, and um, who is Kurt Cobain's age, and they've gone to like house parties where Kurt Cobain is playing, and and so and now that Kurt, he, Cobain is a big success, 
that's exactly what Zane wants. His dream is to to go to LA and become, you know, the next Kurt Cobain and, and Nirvana and, you know, uh, without the death going on. Um, but um, so that's his kind of, his kind of dream is to, he's always felt like an outsider like Cobain, but mm-hmm. he, but he sees how this guy made it big despite being an outsider and despite being an addict and, and, you know, and all of this. So I think for him, it's like the acceptance and the love and the, and all of that. Um, but also struggling with, you know, the darker side of all of that as well. But he actually met Cobain in the, in the novel. They actually shared a joint in, in the bathroom at a club. And he still got that roach. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he still got the roach. He smoked with Kurt Cobain. And <laughs> how It's funny that? how those brushes with fame, frame, mm-hmm. those brushes with fame can really, like, you know, stick with you. Like, even if it's just a moment. Yeah. And I, I remember being at the Blue Note Club in New York. And um, we were like, we were watching Dizzy Gillespie and we were in the front row wow. and um, Dizzy Gillespie at one point, he, he turned to us, some, some guy was yelling some stuff to him and he turned to us and he, he said, what's with that guy or something. And my <laughs> husband to this day, I mean, he's probably mentioned that like, I don't know, 20 times in mm. the past, you know, 15 years. So it, it's like those things just kind of stick with you sometimes and particularly you know, like for me as an author, um, certain, you know, small conversations I've had with authors have really made a big difference for mm-hmm. me. Like, um, I met Wally Lamb and he, he was always one of my favorite authors as a teenager. And so I went to his reading and this was before I had published my first novel. And I asked him if he ever, um, blurbs novels. And he said, well, yeah, sometimes I do. And I told him about my novel and I said, and he said, well, when you get a publisher, you can email me and send me 50 pages and, and I'll think about blurbing it. Oh my so, gosh. So since I'm a reporter, I, about five years later, um, I got an assignment to interview Wally Lamb in person um, for a magazine. And so I went from Seattle to Taos and I, we spent the day together. And towards the end of the day, I said, you know, we actually met about five years ago and you told me <laughs> you sent you my novel and his face just dropped and he's like, oh, <laughs> and I was like, so my novel's finished now. Can I send it to you? And I sent it to him. I just sent him like, it, it wasn't even a galley. It was just a, you know, manuscript mm-hmm. and he read it and he gave me a blurb and it was like one of the you know, highlights of my life. That, Absolutely. You know, I get it. My hero had, had blurbed my book and, mm-hmm. and, um, we had become, you know, friendly. So, so it's just amazing. Those things that have a big impact and, um, it make, and, you know, Charles Cross, who's going to be on later. I mean, he is like one, one of my heroes. Like I wanted to be him when I grew up, you know, <laughs> I mean, I didn't know who he was when I was younger or whatever. Cause he's not that much older than I am. I don't even think he's older than I am, but, um, he's like that, you know, kind of almost famous character that I, I yes. dream of being. So, 
I'm interested in in how Sky views music. And and this is an interesting line. She says that her parents blamed Zane for coming between her and Lauren, but it was the music. For so many of us, people who really love music, it, it is almost like a religion. And there's a section where you really describe the club, the, the motorsport garage, and that's her first time going to see going to a club. Well, it's not really a club, but going there to see a, a band. And then you describe it in kind of religious terms. It's like a, a religious experience for her. And Zane is initiating her into this new religion, and it just becomes very important to her. For Sky and Zane both, it's like that's where they belong. The, you know, it's it's a bunch of misfits who um, are into the grunge scene who, you know, don't necessarily fit in any place else. And, and, um, it's a place you can be accepted and everyone bonds over the music. And so, I mean, I still feel this way at a concert, you know, uh, that people of all ages can go and see a band and, and bond together and, you know, have, have this thing in common where, you all know the lyrics to a song or you all have this love of this, of this artist. Um, and so, and also when I was, um, you know, in college in particular going to music clubs, I mean, that was like the way you found out about bands. I mean, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't Spotify, there wasn't, you, you had to go and go to the club to see a band. And sometimes there would be only five people. I mean, I remember going to see the Violent Femmes and they were, um, I went to school in Madison, Wisconsin, and they were from around there. And I think they were, I'm not positive actually, but they played there a lot. And I remember seeing them when there was like five people and I was a reporter for the Daily Cardinal, a music reporter. And I remember interviewing Gordon Gano, the lead singer. And I was so like, it was, yeah, it was, it was really fun when they became really popular later on. You knew them back when? Yeah. <laughs> in keeping with this whole idea of music relating to religion, in his unfinished recording studio at his house, Zane keeps a photo of Kurt Cobain that he took the night Nirvana first played Smells Like Teen Spirit live at the OK Hotel. That photo is important in, in terms of it's, it's, it's almost like Kurt's watching him during certain scenes. He's just ever present. So what, what does that photo really mean or represent to Zane? I think it represents acceptance. I think it represents, he wants, really what it represents, he wants to mm-hmm. be seen. He wants to be, not by Kurt Cobain necessarily, but he just, he wants to be seen as an artist yeah. primarily um, and as a person. And um, I think that's very difficult for him to communicate. Um, you know, who he really is. The song Smells Like Teen Spirit is really important in the story. Zane and Skye saw the band perform that song for the first time at the OK Hotel. What does that song mean to you? I would say that that song just reminds me of, of sort of that whole um, being on the verge of, you know, having the freedom of, of being young and also, um, and the just the abandonment you feel, the sort of the, you don't, you don't want to grow up, you don't want any of that responsibility and so forth. Where the lights are, it's a 
his lyrics have always perplexed me. And, and I think for people our age, it's impossible to separate the song from the video. Whenever I hear the song, I, I flash on the video and how powerful that was. And I, I always thought he was saying life is stupid and contagious, but it turns out he says, I feel stupid and contagious. But um, I mean, that with the lights out, it's less dangerous. Here we are now, entertain us. I feel stupid and contagious. Here we are now, entertain us. I guess people have debated what, what the hell that song is about. And he never really would, Kurt would never really tell. Yeah, I think it speaks to like, you know, uh, when you're in a club and you're, you know, that whole thing of just not not worrying about how stupid you are mm-hmm. because you're for a few, for a few hours you're kind of in this in this you know tribe of people so i i, I think that's what I've, I've how i've always interpreted it so i gather you were not at that gig at the okay hotel when nirvana first played that song no <laughs> no have I you was seen not. the video there's a video I, on youtube of that performance yes i have seen that um, and I've seen there's a there's a movie of Nirvana's first performance at this other at the Paramount Theater in Seattle and um, the 25th anniversary they showed the film again and that was really fun to go and see. And you wrote in the acknowledgement section in high school and then college, my friends and I bonded over music that conveyed what we couldn't always put into words. Bands like Nirvana, the Ramones, Led Zeppelin, and all of the lesser known local bands who sometimes played to near empty rooms all knew our joy and angst at being on the verge of adulthood. They embodied the revelry of freedom and the intense pain of realizing that freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. You know, again, if you're a music lover, that's so accurate. Even now, you know, like I say, it's I loved I love going to concerts. I mean, not so much anymore with after COVID, unfortunately. But you know, you just can be like a tribe with all these people who you may have nothing else in common with. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I love going back to that that thing of what music means. Like to me, I mean, I still I love listening to music all the time because it makes me feel part of something bigger than myself. Yes. Um, even if I'm just dancing by myself in my kitchen or listening to music in the car or whatever. It's, it's really fun if you're listening to music and you pull up next to someone at a stop sign and or at a stoplight and you just look over at them and they smile because you're <laughs> listening to a song they like. Or Jen, thanks so much for being on the show. Keep up with Jen at her website, jenniferhalp.com. Find her on Twitter at jennifer underscore help and on Instagram at jenniferhalpauthor. Pick up a copy of her novel, Come As You Are, wherever you buy books. We'll take another short break, then we'll be joined by Kurt Cobain biographer Charles R. Cross, who will share some stories about the late Nirvana frontman to add some real-world context to the novel, Come As You Are. Back in a moment. This is Charles R. Cross, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. We're back with more Rock is Lit. I'm stoked to welcome Charles R. Cross to the show. Charles is the author of nine books, including three New York Times bestsellers. 
His 2001 biography of Kurt Cobain, Heavier Than Heaven, has been published in 30 languages and was called, and I quote, one of the most moving and revealing books ever written about a rock star by the Los Angeles Times. Charles was editor of The Rocket, the Seattle music magazine from 1986 through 2000, which was the first magazine to do a cover story on Nirvana. He writes for many newspapers and magazines, lectures on pop culture, and like everyone else who lived through the 90s, he's presently at work on a memoir. Thanks for joining the party, Charles. Glad to have you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So you've read Jennifer Hopp's novel, Come As You Are, so you know what an important role Nirvana, especially Kurt Cobain, plays in the story. Tell me about your history with the band, which I'm assuming begins when you were editor of The Rocket. It does. Um, the Rocket was a magazine that was our local magazine. And, um, you know, Nirvana not only read it, Kurt, Kurt read it as a kid. I was lucky enough to look through his effects uh, when I was working on my biography. And he had it was funny to see these old tattered copies of The Rocket that he'd picked up in Aberdeen. But uh, Nirvana also advertised in the Rocket, I think, three different occasions looking for a drummer. So it's just an amazing idea that Kurt walked into our offices before anybody knew who he was, wrote a check for a few dollars and placed a classified ad. He also did that later in his life when they were famous, and I mistakenly cashed the check. I should have saved that signature, but <laughs> there, was, uh, there were ethics involved. Our paper treated every every band the same. And uh, in any case, we were the local magazine. We gave them their first press and uh, covered them, obviously, up until uh, the end of Kurt's life in 1994. Yeah. Kurt's persona was that he wasn't particularly ambitious, that he was a reluctant rock star. But I gather that that really wasn't the reality. Yeah. Kurt had this really interesting way that he was able to play himself and, and kind of play this role that he could act like he didn't want to be famous, uh, even as he tried everything he possibly could to become more famous. My favorite anecdote about that is the fact that Kurt publicly bitched many times uh, in interviews that he didn't want MTV to play his videos so much, didn't want to appear on MTV, didn't like MTV. And yet he would call his manager repeatedly and say, why aren't we on MTV more? So you had these two sides to him. And, and he was very skillful because he was able to become this huge star, but act as if it was all somewhat of an inconvenience to him. And that gave him a kind of credibility. Um, people thought they were seeing the real Kurt. In a way, they were seeing part of him. But of course, every artist that puts himself out there is somebody that does want attention, and he he desperately wanted the attention that he ultimately got. I think what happens, unfortunately for him, is that in the end, that attention didn't fill some of the holes inside him, and in 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 a way, he ends up even more empty after that success. Kurt was one of the first rock stars to put, if you want to call it that dark side or that weak side, he openly embraced that and put that in his lyrics. And, you know, Come As You Are is a great example. The song Something in the Way is, I think, the best example where he is just desperate for human contact and attention. And so you see a vulnerability that I think people could relate to. Become my pets, and I'm living on. 
you knew Kurt, right? You actually had, you met him. Yeah, though I I was not, and no journalist was buddies with Kurt. Um, you know, at the points I met him, I was the editor of a magazine that he wanted to be in. I was intimidated by him, and, and he likely was somewhat intimidated by me. So I uh, was not friends with him. Uh, the, the truth of being a journalist and covering the scene is you're you're there, you're in it, everyone knows who you are. You have relationships, but your main job and your your main relationship is with your readers. Um, yeah. If you get too close to bands, uh, at some point you can lose perspective. There were one or two journalists that got close to Kurt and kind of got caught up in a drug world. So, um, you know, that's that that was the price. Kurt had five friends in his life, and all of them struggled with drug problems. So. Anybody that says they were Kurt Cobain's friend is exaggerating, and they're less one of those five people, all of whom have been through rehab at this point. Um, okay, well, speaking of that, like Zane in the novel Come As You Are, Kurt suffered from drug addiction and depression. What do you know about his history of mental illness and addiction? Yeah, Um uh, when I want to describe him, and when I write a biography, I don't psychoanalyze the people I write about. I just simply try to say the facts. But we're talking now after the fact, and um, I, I will put on my analyst hat, which uh, you know I, is somewhat unfair when a person is deceased. But my analyst hat tells me that the, the best way to describe Kurt to people who don't understand is just leave the addiction part off leave everything off and just use two words, mental illness. And it all springs from that. And I think normalizing that gives us a better sense of addiction. Um, there has been so much written about Kurt where they imply that that he loved drugs more than anything else. That wasn't true, that, that drugs really were his God. And um, it all sprang out of mental illness. He suffered from depression very early as a child. He suffered from suicide thoughts long before he ever had discovered opiates. And all those things were churning in his mind. Why a person suffers from that and another doesn't, we don't understand. But I do think it helps us and it helps other people who suffer from some of these same things to normalize some of the issues that he dealt with and to go, this was part of an illness. If it had been cancer, people wouldn't have moral judgments with it. He had suicide in his family, didn't he? He did. He'd had three suicides with close family members. Mm. They were horrific. And then add to that, one of the things I discovered reading his diaries, when Kurt was just in junior high, he walked in the woods at one point and found someone who had just recently hung themselves. So imagine the impression of that, discovering someone who just had died on a kid. I think he was 12 or something at that point. These are, these are dark thoughts. And, uh, but I think the familial history of suicide is the one thing that researchers show um, really can affect people. Suicides work in clusters. It's ultimately a, you know, it, it's, a, it's a human experience that crosses all norms. But when you have somebody that does it that you know, it gives this sense that maybe those taboos and those norms are, aren't there. And uh, that's one of the sad realities about family histories of suicide. Kurt felt that was a choice that his people and his family could make. And 
His suicide attempt that resulted in his death in 1994 was one of at least a half dozen suicide attempts that he made in his life. And when one looks at drug addiction and the the amount of drugs Kurt was using in the last part of his life, I consider every one of those uses suicide. And many of Kurt's drug friends say he used so much they constantly thought he was going to die. Um, he 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 felt like he wanted to die. It, it, there's of course the lyric in the Nirvana song, "I hate myself and I want to die." Um, this was a common theme in his work. How could we have stopped this? Is the thing people most want to ask me, or how could we stop anyone? And the answer is proper treatment of this as a mental illness and working on all of the issues. Taking Kurt away from heroin in a rehab for two or three days didn't solve any of the problems that were behind there. And ultimately, he left a rehab, went and took his life just four or five days later. always thought that he was addicted to heroin for years and years and years, but actually it was only, what, the last two or three years of his life? Yeah, Kurt's addiction to heroin would be less than three years. Um, and, you know, ironically, it, it, his, his fame is about three and a half years, but his, his consistent use of opiates really started in the beginning of 1992, and he was dead two, and, two years and three months later. So, um, this, this was not the only thing in Kurt's life either. Um, heroin grabbed him and, and became kind of a higher power for him at times. But I think that it, his drug addiction can be way overstated when one looks at it, because if we look at those two and a half years, Kurt produced two albums. He toured, um, America in the, in the world, played a hundred or so concerts this was not somebody that was just high on drugs and did nothing. Um, Most of his career uh, happened during that time. It was an aspect of him. We can't deny that. And I don't want to sound overly defensive, but I do think the idea of focusing on him simply as an addict um, gives a false impression of him as a human being and someone who, whatever his drug use, accomplished an incredible amount of creative work. Absolutely. I think there's there's also the issue of his stomach issues, you know, his gastrointestinal problems. Do you think that contributed to some of the depression or how early did that set in? That set in very early. It it may have set in even before issues of depression. There also had been a family history of uh stomach problems and uh um you know, and back to drugs, Kurt was given Ritalin at a young age as well. There are many who think that that can also set off something that might make somebody more likely to uh, abuse drugs later in life. Uh, Whether that's brain chemistry or just patterning, no one definitively knows, but there is research being done around that. So Kurt had a number of issues. He had stomach issues. He had problems with his back. He was one of the skinniest people I've ever seen in my entire life. It's it's almost impossible for people to 
imagine how skinny he was because usually he wore two or three sets of clothes when he was pictured. Um, and that caused him some level of shame as well. Uh, so he had many, many issues beyond drug addiction. Uh, to me, the, the truth about Kurt Cobain is it's just an absolute miracle he created what he did, given where he was, given his poverty, given some of his physical and mental challenges. It's, it's, a, it's an unbelievable miracle that he created the work that he did. I was in pain. I mean, I was in pain for so long that I didn't care if I was in a band. I didn't care if I was alive, you know. And it just so happened that I came to that conclusion at a time when my band became really popular, you know. I mean, it had been going on and, and building up for so many years that I was, you know, suicidal. I mean, I just didn't want to live, so... I just thought, if I'm going to die, if I'm going to kill myself, I should take some drugs, you know. <laughs> May as well become a junkie, because I felt like a junkie every day, you know. You know, waking up, starving, tr forcing myself to eat, you know, barfing it back up. It's like, you know, just just imagine trying to eat your three meals a day and just, just concentrating and just crying at times, just like, ugh, I'm in pain all the time, you know. And being on tour was a lot worse, too. You know, it made it even worse. So I know that you were one of the first people to learn of his suicide. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was a really awful day. And uh, in all likelihood, Kurt died on April 5th. His body laid undiscovered for a few days, which itself is just awful to even say. Um, on the morning of April 8th, I was in my office at the Rocket, and... Uh, the way the story went down is uh, an electrician um, discovered Kurt's body that was working on his house, uh, called the police, but also called the local radio station, which was called KXRX, the kind of mainstream rock station, and with some alternative. And I happened to be a person that did a, did a report on that KRX. So the people at the station called me immediately. And I remember to this day picking the phone up and the person from KXRX saying, a body's been discovered at Kurt's house. Could this possibly be him? <sighs> and the words out of my mouth that day were, no, it can't possibly be him. My denial is, of course, everyone's denial in hearing it. We loved Kurt. We loved his music. You know, we wanted it to be anyone but him. Uh, if we want to blame anything for Kurt's left, death in, in a way, we, of course, have to blame himself. No other person or thing uh, gets gets credit for a suicide. That's always left with the person that made the choice. Mm. But I do think overworking and and not enough attention to the, the help he needed, mental and physical, um, those things played a role in, uh, in his choice. You've said that what a great rock record will do is sort of suggest another world, another possibility, a larger, greater, more romantic place than you're at. How did the Nirvana album Nevermind accomplish that? Well, I can speak for me. Um, for me, I remember to this moment, the day I first heard it, it was in the parking lot of a Tower Records in Seattle, a uh, person that worked there had gotten an ad early advanced copy. The first two seconds of Smells Like Teen Spirit were cut off. Um, but I remember popping it in the dash of my car and going like, holy crap. <laughs> um, 
you know, I've gotten speeding tickets before while uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit was on the <laughs> stereo. Um, the power of that record is that it 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 captures an angst and an aggression that most people are afraid to ad- admit is in them, but we all have it. And uh, it, there's also a celebration in that. It is a celebratory record. Um, it's a record that touched me in so many ways and still does. There are a lot of records from that era that I listen to now and I just don't feel the same, but I got to say, anytime I hear that record, it's a song I, I never cut forward from it. I'm happy if I hear it on the radio as opposed to going like, oh no, not another. And I don't want to slam any bands, but there, there are some bands from Seattle whose music sounds more repetitive to me over time and over the decades. I think one of the gifts of Nirvana is those records were produced in a way that they have a timelessness. Um, In Utero is their their best record, I would argue. Um, But so much of that is the songwriting of Kurt Cobain. He he just simply was one of the world's best songwriters ever. Um, uh, That's not an exaggeration to say. There are people who don't like Nirvana, don't like Kurt Cobain, and I always encourage them to listen to the MTV Unplugged. Oh, it's amazing. songs and his craft live on long after his personality. Were you at that OK Hotel performance when they did? I was not. There's a long story about why I wasn't there that may may or may not appear in my memoir. Mm. At that point, no one knew that that was going to be the legendary show. And no one knew. It is important when people list talk about that, the OK Hotel show, which, you know, 320 people saw or something. Um, the crowd does not go crazy when Smells Like Teen Spirit is played. There's much more applause for other songs. So it took a while. And in a way, that song was better on the radio than it was in concert. I mean, I saw Nirvana a number of times in concert play that song. Of course, people went crazy and there was slam dancing. But there's something about that song. Kurt's greatest gift is that when he sang, you felt like he was singing to you. There's an individualism to his voice that reaches out and grabs people. And in a way, in a bizarre way, a record, a CD, or the radio does it a little better than even being in concert. Um, There are other songs in rock that are better in a concert setting. There are even some Nirvana songs that, that were better in concert than they were. But Smells Like Teen Spirit is one that I believe the personal relationship of you to the singer, it works better when you're not around 25,000 people. The song took off when it hit radio in August of 1991. That's when it became something. The video really didn't debut until later and become most people's experience of Smells Like Teen Spirit was that they initially heard it on the radio. But nobody thought Smells Like Teen Spirit was going to be huge. I mean, I had the personal connection of being at the record release party for Nevermind and actually having a conversation with Kurt and the the people in Sub Pop about how much the record was going to sell. I predicted 100,000 
and and no one else thought that was even possible. Um, so again, the stories become apocryphal. Everyone thinks, oh my God, we knew this was going to be huge. I think the story that tells you the sort of lie of the idea of Nevermind being something that everyone predicted, the, the clearest indication of that is Geffen Records. They printed 40,000 of Nevermind. Wow. If they thought it was going to be huge, they would have made a heck of a lot more. But that was the perception of what the label did. Those 40,000 did sell out within the month, but it, it became something it wasn't on the day it was released. What do you think his legacy is? I think his legacy ultimately is the songs, the craft. Uh, I wrote uh, a little bit in a piece a while back about this. This is almost unbelievable, but Kurt is one of the icons of rap and hip hop music. He is cited in over three dozen rap or hip hop songs, um, just like Muhammad Ali would be. There'll be lines about Kurt Cobain, um, and he he's become. Uh, as, there's both Kurt as a personality, and so that's a little bit what I'm talking about. the The Nirvana T-shirt has been Target's bestseller for for uh, several decades now. Um, that image and that idea of Nirvana lives on. But beyond that, his ultimate legacy is the craft he created with those songs. And then, of course, I, I can't not say that his legacy is his daughter. Um, yeah. You know, that this is also part of Kurt's legacy is his wife who lives on and still creates music and has her own memoir coming out here very soon and uh, tells a bunch of stories about that. Well, thanks so much for being on Rock is Lit, Charles. You're welcome. Where can folks find out more about you and buy your books? Yeah, all of my books are would either be would be on any of the online platforms, but uh, my website, which doesn't get updated very much, but if someone can't find them anywhere, they can reach me through that, which is just my name with my middle name, Charles R. Cross dot com. And uh, but I'm pretty active on social media as well, and uh, can be reached there. Let's take one last short break, then Nabil Ayers will join us to talk about some of his experiences as a young person living, working, and rocking in the Seattle grunge scene of the 1990s, a scene that helped shape the characters and plot of Jennifer Haupt's novel Come As You Are. Hang tight. This is Nabil Ayers, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. And we're back with more Rock is Lit. For this final segment, we're joined by Nabil Ayers. Nabil has written about race and music for the New York Times, NPR, Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, and GQ. His memoir, My Life in the Sunshine, was published in June 2022 by a Viking Penguin. Nabil is the president of Beggars Group U.S., where he has run campaigns for the National, Big Thief, Grimes, Future Islands, and St. Vincent as well as reissue campaigns, including Pixie's album, Do Little, which was certified platinum in 2019. At age 25, Nabil and his business partner opened Seattle's Sonic Boom record store, which they sold to a longtime customer in 2016. As a drummer, Nabil has performed in several bands, including The Long Winters and Tommy Stinson. 
on his own record label, the control group Valley of Search. Nabil has released music by Kate LeBon, The Killers, PJ Harvey, Patricia Brennan, and his uncle, the jazz musician Alan Brouthman. Nabil lives with his wife in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome to Rock is Lit, Nabil. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on the new memoir, My Life in the Sunshine, which chronicles your journey to connect with your musician father, Roy Ayers, and examines the lines that define family and race. I want to talk about that, but I know your time is limited. We're going to jump to Seattle. This is the fun part. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about (laughs) Seattle in the 1990s, since that's such a big part of Jennifer Halp's rock novel, Come As You Are. How did you wind up in Seattle? I lived in Salt Lake City in high school, and I went to college at the University of Puget Sound, which is in Tacoma, about 45 minutes south of Seattle. So, you know, it's a, essentially a suburb of Seattle. We would go up there and go to shows and go to record stores. And, uh, and I started in the fall of 89, not knowing what was about to happen. So it was just a really incredible time to be there and to be a college student and to be that age. And then, uh, and then in 1993, when I graduated, I moved to Seattle proper. And then, it, then I was just in it talk about timing. That was perfect. So set the scene for me, Seattle in the age of grunge, the 1990s. (laughs) What was what was the atmosphere like? I mean, was there something in the air? Did you know something was happening? I think so. I mean, I didn't from Salt Lake City, I hadn't spent any time in Seattle or in the Northwest. And I was looking at colleges with my mother and she kind of decided she's like, I think you'll like these areas. So I looked at a lot of schools in Portland and Seattle and San Diego and all over California and really just loved Seattle. And I remember thinking like, it just feels musical here. And I play drums, always played in bands, loved music. So I knew that had to be part of my life. So, um, and I don't know what it was. We didn't like see tons of bands or anything, but just Mm. there's something about being in Seattle and driving around. I just noticed like, hmm, there's a lot of record stores. (laughs) There are a lot of flyers on these poles. Everyone here looks like they're in a band. It just feels like (laughs) this is... That's all I knew. I didn't know about yeah. sub pop or anything yet. This would have been in like 1988, and I was a 16-year-old so in Salt Lake City. So it just it just felt right. And then once I got there, of course, met friends. And one big funny turning point for me that's not in the book. There is a lot of this stuff in the book. But uh, we bought tickets to see Motley Crue play, I guess this would have been fall of 89. And then my a new friend in college got me into Soundgarden. He played me the album Ultra Mega OK. And I was, of course, it's like, what is this? This is like... It's kind of like Jane's Addiction, but it's kind of like Black Sabbath, but it's kind of like Black Flag. I don't even know what and this is. And a little so Led Zeppelin and, thrown in there too. Right, of course, yeah. yeah. And uh, and then they ended up playing the same night, and that was was like great. We're selling our Motley Crue tickets when we're going to see Soundgarden, and that was like a big. That was literally the turning point. And, and the rest is history. Like, yeah, just incredible. What were some key locations in Seattle at that time, like the OK Hotel, some other places? Yeah, the OK. I didn't start going to the OK Hotel till a little later. I went there. I saw Nirvana play the the sort of very famous show where they debuted "Smells Like Teen Spirit." And um, wow, OK, you been... were there for that. Yeah, Yay. yeah. OK, that would that was in May, April or May. I think April, April. ninety. So it was right before they drove down to LA to record. Never mind. Mm. Um, and and I've since learned that apparently they played that show for the gas money to oh my <laughs> go gosh on the drive, but that show was incredible. Actually, I wrote an article about it. I mean, what I remember, I was nineteen, knew Bleach and knew Nirvana, but didn't know a lot. And the, the funny backstory is that my friend and I actually drove to Seattle to try to be extras in the movie Singles, which they were shooting. And there was an Alice in Chains live scene, but there were too many people there. We knew we we weren't going to get in, so we were just like, well, let's just see what else is going on since we made this drive. Oh, Nirvana's playing the OK Hotel. Let's get there early, buy our tickets. We don't really know our way around town. Um, and so luckily we did, because by the time we came back, it was super sold out and packed. And it was 
to this day, still one of the best shows I've ever seen. I mean, I sound like some revisionist (laughs) history snob. The song is called Smells Like Teen Spirit. But I remember leaving and thinking I felt terrible. I had this awful kind of almost like stomach ache. I felt kind of tired. I felt really, really depressed. And I was like, well, I don't understand. Why do I feel like this? Usually when I leave a great show, I feel great and I'm excited. And I figured out on the drive, I was like, it was because they just ruined music for me. I've never seen anything that good and I never will again. And everything, I've been wasting my entire life listening to anything. (laughs) And it really, really... What was the reception like there? Was everybody else kind of freaking out too? I mean, I I couldn't tell if anyone felt like I did, but of course, you know, this was 1990. So it was, yeah, everyone was just going, people went crazy at (laughs) jazz concerts in Seattle in 1990. I think it was just like, yeah, it was a crazy mosh pit. That's a small packed 300 person club. So it was really sweaty and just really nuts. But, But what stuck with me wasn't just like, Ah, uh, this crazy energy. It was like the band was so heavy and so powerful, and those songs were so catchy. So there's no way to hear those songs until Nevermind came out. But I had Breed and Smells Like Teen Spirit and Lithium, and those songs were seriously in my head from hearing them live once. And when they when I finally heard the record, I was like, Oh yeah, this song. Oh yeah, this song. Like that's that's just how how good they were. You wrote an article for The Stranger, and, and this is a quote. Mm-hmm. Soundgarden will never be the first Seattle band anyone mentions. It will always be Nirvana or Pearl Jam. But for me, Soundgarden was the first. They introduced me to and embodied what it meant to be a huge band without the bullshit that huge bands carried before them. Iconic musicians who sat on top of the world and at the same time, normal guys who continued to frequent the same Seattle record stores and bars that my friends and I did. Was that what it was really like? That these now iconic musicians were just kind of hanging out with everybody? Yeah, totally. Wow. Um, that's funny that I, I forgot that I wrote that, but that that matches with the <laughs> me hearing Soundgarden for the first time and that kind of being a shift in, in things for me. But yeah, they. I mean, Chris Cornell and Eddie Vedder used to shop at Easy Street, the record store I worked at. Eddie probably still shops there. Um, and they would just come in. I mean, Eddie came in like a normal customer during the day and hung out and bought stuff and it was great. And Chris used to come in at night, like right before we'd close, because I think he just didn't want to be around people as much. But I mean... You would see all those people at shows and bars and restaurants and they didn't have bodyguards and they weren't in limos like this is, you know, this is right at the end of the sort of hair metal LA MTV. So you think of every rock star as that, right? The Sunset Strip and Motley Crue videos. And and these people were as big as those people. But in many ways, they were the opposite. It was just so sort of real and pure and like and people didn't really bother them. I mean, I'm sure they did, but I never noticed it. It was always just like, yeah, they're just hanging out in the same bar because they're cool people. Tell me the story about Eddie Vedder when he came in that time and, and bought the entire Who section. That <laughs> <laughs> was so funny. I was working once and uh, yeah, and he came in. He used to come in a lot. He was always really nice. We wouldn't like talk for a long time, but better say hi. And I, this is probably 1994, 95. So I'm just out of college and he's literally the biggest rock star in the world, arguably at that time. And he would walk in and and that day, I remember he took the whole who section, which whatever it was, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm making the, the the motion of a stack of CDs, what yeah, that used to yeah. feel like. But I was like, what, a foot of CDs? 
and just and it wasn't like he was searching it's like grabbed him brought him to the counter paid and and i remember while he was in line the kid in front of him was buying a pearl jam cd and we both kind of looked at each other and did like a little like quiet nod (laughs) that's that's excellent (laughs) because he just had he had like a little ski cap on like he didn't look you know he wasn't in disguise but he didn't look like a rock star yeah like a cool dude who were some other bands that we would all know that you saw in seattle at that time let me see. I mean, I saw Mudhoney many times, and they were always great. I saw them open for Nirvana at that sort of legendary mm. Halloween Halloween 1991 show at the Moor. Um, Alice in Chains, oddly, I didn't see very much. They, they, for some reason, always felt a bit less accessible to me. Like they were either I was out of town, maybe, or I didn't know when they were playing. But I only saw them once or twice. I never had. I don't have like a cool, you know, club story. And but I mean, from that period, it it evolved pretty quickly for me into like sunny day real estate and kind of the next wave of bands that that weren't those grunge bands but that were still really great bands that were exciting to see in clubs and that was just happening all the time you could go to any club in seattle and there would be three rock bands playing and it was reasonably you could expect that there would be at least one very good one that you'd never end up hearing of because there were too many (laughs) it's just a really exciting time in, in rock music let's talk about sonic boom records you opened the store in seattle in 1997 and it's been named one of the best record stores in America by Rolling Stone, The Wall Street Journal, and Spin Magazine, and has been profiled by NPR, The New York Times, and The Seattle Times. What do you think was so special about the store that it, it just became basically a hub for Northwest indie rock? Yeah, I think we got some of it was luck and timing. And my friend and I opened the store in 97, which obviously was, you know, the Seattle grunge thing was kind of was over. But that happened to be right at the beginning of what was what I would consider another movement, which was definitely the Seattle slash Northwest sort of indie rock thing. So when I worked at Easy Street, it was Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and those bands shopping there, which was great. And then at Sonic Boom, it was Death Cab for Cutie and Modest Mouse and Pedro the Lion and these Northwest bands that certainly weren't as big as those bands. But but what was fun was to be in that scene with those people when they were kind of starting out or when it was their early days and they were releasing their first albums and they weren't huge yet and to watch them get big and to have the store kind of grow with them that's really what it felt like some of those people worked in the store they played in the store they hung out there and it kind of i feel like it all started at the same time those bands and our store Mm -hmm. and it was a really fun thing to kind of to watch it grow and become this different Seattle scene. What do you think tipped it into this stratosphere that it, it really wound up where it was this huge thing? I don't, I don't know. I mean, just great bands. Maybe that's what it was. I mean, I, now I'm thinking of like Built to Spill and Elliot Smith. And, you know, those weren't those weren't our friends and those weren't people who were actually in Seattle. But they were, to me, part of that Northwest indie rock sort of late 90s thing. Um a lot of those bands, and this is true of the earlier 90s and late 80s Seattle thing too, those bands were friends with each other and those bands supported each other. And I think that's a big part of any scene when you have that and one band does well and then they take another band out to open for them and that, you know, and that kind of, you, you build that community. Seattle's always been really, really good at that. And I think that helped both scenes. I read in your book that Death Cab for Cutie played a, a live in-store show <laughs> yeah. and, and that that sort of helped get the word out. Yeah, that was definitely that because that was pretty early days for us. So to suddenly have all these people show up one day and, you know, I I hope a lot of them became customers just from being there once. Yeah. Yeah. Did you carry your dad's records in the store? (sighs) That's a good question. (laughs) I think we carried Everybody Loves the Sunshine. Uh That's probably it. Maybe it would have had a greatest hits record. I mean, we are such a small store, especially when we opened and 
jazz or anything non-rock would have been a relatively small section. So I I think we had probably just everybody loves the sunshine. And I don't know if it ever sold back then. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you sell the store? Um, I had moved to New York several years before we sold it in 2016. I moved in 2008. And my partner, Jason, who I'm still good friends with, he had had two children. Him and his, they had family in Minnesota where his wife's family is from, I think. And Decided to move back there. I think we'd just done it for long enough and had a really great run. And and we sold it to a customer, which was amazing. I mean, he, he still runs it. It smells the same. It looks the same. And uh, and it's turning 25 in a month. Wow. Which is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a really fun thing to to have done it and then have it still be there. I was just back there a month or so ago, and it's so fun to, to have it exist, mm-hmm. but without the headaches of... <laughs> without know, having to run it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Nabil, and best of luck with the book. Find out more about Nabil at his website, nabilairs.com. You can also find him on Twitter and Instagram, at Nabil Ayers. Don't forget to check out Charles R. Cross at his website, charlesrcross.com, and on Twitter at Charles R. Cross. You can buy his books, Nabil Ayers' new memoir, My Life in the Sunshine, and Jennifer Halp's rock novel and centerpiece of this episode, Come As You Are, wherever you buy books. On a final note, I was fortunate enough to record a massive amount of fascinating material during these three amazing interviews, quite a bit of which I could not fit into this episode. Migrate to the Rock is Lit vault for outtakes and for my full, uncut interview with Charles R. Cross about Kurt Cobain. Trust me, if you're a Kurt fan, you will absolutely not want to miss this. Good evening. I'm Michael Stipe. I'm here to induct Nirvana into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Kurt Cobain, Chris Novoselic, and Dave Grohl were Nirvana. The potency and the power of their defining moment has become, for us, indelible. Nirvana tapped into a voice that was yearning to be heard. And that voice, that voice, Kurt, we miss you. I miss you. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit! Rock is Lit!